Hi, and welcome to a Dad's Path podcast. We're real dads solving everyday problems. Each week we tackle issues that dads everywhere face and deliver actions you can take right away. Subscribe so you don't miss an episode and go to adadspath.com to get our free newsletter exclusively for dads. Our goal is to help you make fatherhood count. Dad on. Hello, and welcome to another episode of A Dad's Path Podcast. I'm Will Bronstein. Today, I'm here with Sarah Rosensweet, a certified peaceful parenting coach, speaker, educator, and the host of the top-rated parenting podcast, The Peaceful Parenting Podcast, which is something I know we all strive for. She founded her coaching, her peaceful parenting in 2013, and she offers private one-on-one coaching courses, membership, and she's helped thousands of families worldwide. You can check her out at sarahrosensweet.com. And the last thing I'll say is she offers a free course for our listeners, which I will put in the show notes, how to stop yelling at your kids. So at the very least, check out the show notes. Welcome, Sarah. Oh, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for for joining us. Yeah, I really like, uh, you know, the reason I wanted to have you come on is I saw your website, I listened to your podcast a little bit, but you have this parenting superpower sort of quiz, (laughs) which, you know, I've seen a lot of quizzes online, like, you know, and they're usually a little like... I don't know, BuzzFeedy or <laughs> not a lot of substance. Uh, no offense, BuzzFeed. <laughs> but yours I really found interesting. And I was wondering if we could talk maybe a little bit about the quiz, but more in the context of what parenting superpowers are. Sure. And then how you can kind of use that to guide your parenting or help your parenting. Yeah. One thing that I've noticed in my coaching practice is that we can always learn from the things that we do well. Like I, I often invite my clients to start a call with sharing a win. And we do that in my Facebook groups too, because as parents, well, as humans, we're predisposed to focus on the negative. Like that's what's kept us safe evolutionarily is like, you know, we notice all the bad things so that we don't do them again and keep ourselves safe. But that's not very helpful in human relationships or in parenting. So when we are sort of looking for wins and looking for what we're doing well, that can really help shift our mindset. And also we can learn from it. Like when something goes well, like, oh, what did I do differently this time that, you know, it was disaster last time, but it was actually okay this time. So I really think it helps us to just shift our mindset. And honestly, so many parents beat themselves up when they mess up or yell at their kids or, you know, don't respond in the way that they would like to. And they think that they're going to do better by making themselves feel worse. And that never, ever works. The only time I've ever seen parents make improvements is when they come to themselves with compassion, even when they mess up. So I just like the idea of the superpower because, you know, you might you might kind of suck at one thing, but there are going to be things that you are really good at. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that's the right attitude for sure. Start with the wins. and um, But with it, could you give some examples of what superpowers, you know, you see typically or? Sure. What's a superpower? What are some superpowers? Yeah, well, the ones that we identify in the quiz are superpowers of connecting, self-regulation. And self-regulation doesn't mean, this is what we talk about in the free course that you mentioned, Self-regulation doesn't mean that you never get upset or frustrated with your kids. It just means that you know how to calm yourself when you do get upset or you try to calm yourself so that you can respond rather than react out of anger when your kid, you know, won't burst their teeth or whatever the thing is. Welcoming feelings, which is really, really important in terms of helping kids develop resilience. Resilience, sometimes I think parents get confused about what emotional resilience is and they think that it's not getting upset about things. But really true resilience is that you get upset and then you recover, right? And that's what you need to have that ability to recover after 
difficulties and frustrations so that you, you know, are willing to try new things and hard things. And, you know, life is always throwing curveballs at us and we need to be able to know I can handle this, right? So welcoming our children's feelings and what that looks like is, you know, they're upset about something small, like, you know, you've said no more cookies today or something like that. And they're crying and crying. You know, often we have this temptation to either say, okay, okay, fine, you can have another cookie, right? Which is stopping the feelings or to say like, stop crying. You already had one cookie. Consider yourself lucky that you had one at all. You know, some children don't get any cookies or whatever. And that's also stopping the feelings. You know, those two things, whether it's being permissive and like, yes, okay, you can have another cookie or whether it's being more authoritarian and telling the kid to, you know, suck it up, buttercup kind of thing. They're the flip sides of the same coin, which is stopping the feelings. So welcoming feelings, the opposite of that would be look like, oh my goodness, you love cookies so much. And probably nutritionists out there are going to be saying, well, you should, you know, we shouldn't limit food choices or whatever. I'm just using this as an example, but you know, oh, you love cookies so much and you wish you could eat the whole box of cookies. I know, sweetheart, we're, we're not going to have any more cookies today. And just empathizing and welcoming those feelings, welcoming those tears. And then the fourth superpower that we've identified is in setting limits, which is being able to, you know, kind of relates to the welcoming feelings because you have to be able to tolerate those feelings of discomfort when your child doesn't like a limit that you've set. So, you know, setting limits can be tricky because we don't want to be the bad guy or we feel bad when our kids are upset. And another part of setting limits, I think that's important to think about is choosing the right limits to set. And of course that I say the right limits for your family. There's no right or wrong answer. But when we stop and think about, okay, what do we want? Is this limit that I'm setting, is it reasonable? Is it necessary? Is it developmentally appropriate? And to be able to stop and think, you know, when your kid is doing something or asking for something, stop and think, is this a limit that I want to set? Is this important? And for me, that comes down to health and safety. Gotcha. I love this. I mean, I feel like we could spend the whole podcast on kind of each of these superpowers. <laughs> yeah. And and sometimes I think we have superpowers that are like our, I was thinking about this when you said you wanted to talk about superpowers. And I think my superpower is patience. And like, I'm an extremely patient person. And also sometimes that's gotten me into trouble. <laughs> so there's always sort of, you know, my daughter, she's fine with me talking about this because she's public about it, but she has ADHD. And we were really late getting a diagnosis because I'm so patient. And I think other parents when she was younger would have said like, you know, what the heck is going on here? Like we need to figure this out. But I just was so patient. And so I kind of, you know, I see that as my superpower, but also like, oh, I wish I hadn't been quite so patient because it would have been useful to her to understand that she had ADHD from a younger age. Yeah, no, it's that's super interesting. I mean, strengths, um, yeah, often often have a little bit of a weakness associated with them, and that got me thinking. You know, as we were talking about this, you know, you have a superpower, and you have a partner, maybe a spouse, a husband, wife, whatever it is, uh, and they have a superpower, and they're different. You know, they're much different often, I think, or they can be. Do you have advice for communicating that? Or, you know, saying if you haven't taken the superpower quiz, but you recognize, hey, this is a strength I have, and this is an area I'm weaker on, this is a strength you have. How do we combine that? I know it's a loaded question, right? <laughs> How do you have a relationship? But <laughs> you understand, yeah. Well, I think when you're looking at the 
inverse of superpowers, which would be like, you know, your weakness, I guess. I think to recognize that your partner is doing the best they can is so important. And again, that's what I've seen over and over again when, you know, it's pretty common for one parent to find peaceful parenting and then maybe their partner is a little hesitant or later to come on board. But the, when you're so excited about this new thing and it, see how well it's working for you, and there's a tendency to try to drag your partner along with you. And often what that looks like is you're doing it wrong. You know, you're not supposed to say that and don't yell at him or, or whatever the, the thing is. But really, and I will get back to your actual question, but I just want to frame it. Really, the, you have to recognize also that your partner is doing the best they can and to be compassionate with them when they're having a hard time. Because anytime a parent is acting in a way that is less than ideal, it's because they're actually having a hard time. And, you know, we say that about the kids in peaceful parenting, you know, they're not giving me a hard time, they're having a hard time. And that's the same with the parent who's yelling at the five-year-old because he won't put his shoes on or whatever. You know, that parent doesn't want to be acting like that. They're just stressed and frustrated and they haven't learned the self-regulation skills yet that they need to be more patient. So as a partner recognizing like, okay, maybe my superpower is patience, not so much my partner's. How can I be compassionate with them when they are having a hard time? And then further, I think learning like, okay, I'm, I'm stronger in this area. I'm going to go in and help and tap them out. So you might walk in and say something like, ah, oh, looks like you and, you know, let's say it's a dad, you and daddy are having a hard time getting ready. How can I help? So really just recognizing like you might have strengths, your partner has strengths, you have weaknesses, your partner has weaknesses, and how can you support each other when things are hard? Let me take over here in a kind way. You know, let me take over here, go take five minutes, pull yourself off, and and then we'll come back together. Absolutely. I like that. That's a very elegant way to take over, you know, not, <laughs> like, let me, let me do this. You, you're, you're yelling, you know? You're doing it wrong. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No one responds well to that. And that's what we've learned is like, you know, anytime anyone feels shame, they just get more dysregulated. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, and it's interesting because it's not always easy to be compassionate all the time towards your kids. We see, <laughs> I've talked to parents and, you know, even same with me, unfortunately, but yeah, I'm doing the best I can. And part of it is when my child or I hear of other kids who are acting up or this or that, and we talk about how, hey, these are still kids. Like, you know, they don't have fully developed brains at all. That's like what's happening right now. It's going to be a long time still. And our brains are fully developed. And yet we're having some trouble showing compassion sometimes. I mean, but it also flips it on the head a little bit saying, hey, you know, show compassion towards your partner. You know, you have trouble sometimes, you know, speaking for myself, I have trouble sometimes. It's not always easy. Yeah, 100%. And, and it doesn't mean that we're not going to try to do better or that we don't want to support our partner to do better. It just means like right then in that moment when they're having a hard time is not the time to give suggestions. That's right. <laughs> and that's a really good lesson as well for anyone. You know, your kids, like there are times they just can't listen. Yeah. And you want to you want to be communicating to them and it's going to be a brick wall no matter what you do. No matter if you go really loud or if you, you know, like they're just not. Yeah. I So often parents are afraid in the moment, like, well, I've got to get them to see or I've got to teach them. But most of the time, it's, I, I actually have this saying, it's not always a teachable moment, right? <laughs> like, because if the kid's dysregulated or sometimes they even, once they calm down, they know what they did wrong and they don't need you to like bring it back into their face and say like, oh, you know, this thing that happened this morning that like they've already learned what they need to learn from it. 
Mm-hmm. It's kind of like, what are you trying to accomplish? Are you trying to, you know, make sure your child learns something and teach a lesson? Or are you trying to get anger out of your system mm-hmm. and <laughs> communicate that? Right. Because yeah, you often, I think you want to say, Hey, you messed up. And they say, yes, I know. Yeah. I'm done. You know, please don't bring it up. And you still want to bring it up. And it's like, no, they, they learned the lesson. That comes out of our own fear. I think that wanting to bring it up and well, what if they never learn? And I think it, that talks to a wider idea, which is there's a book that's called The Carpenter and the Gardener. Uh, It's a metaphor for parenting. I think it's Alison Gopnik, I'm pretty sure. She talks about like, you know, there are carpenter parents who think they need to build the child, right? And then there are the gardener parents who believe that everything the child needs to know is within them and we just have to provide the right amount of water and light and, you know, temperature and all that stuff. And so that coming back to that, does it have to be a teachable moment? Do you believe that your child can learn from learn from things themselves or does it have to be kind of pounded into them like a hammer and a nail? And what's your take on that? A gardener all the way. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. People want to be good, right? Going back to what I said before, like people want to be good. They want to, nobody wants to be a jerk. It's if they are acting like a jerk, it's because they're low on resources or they're dysregulated or whatever. Same for us, for us as parents. Yeah, no, it's funny. It's easy to just, you know, <laughs> it's like, are you hungry? Are you tired? And it's like, same with, like, I didn't get sleep and now I'm grumpier. And-, and, and to your point about brains not being developed yet, right? You know, immature brains are very easily dysregulated and it can be messy. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And the other thing I think about are sort of just, you know, your child doesn't have that many outlets, especially when they're young. You know, they go to school maybe, you know, or preschool and maybe see a few people there. They don't have a ton of autonomy. So acting up or I don't know if acting up is quite the right word, but that's a way of um, showing some autonomy, some power almost, something that they're experimenting with, learning with as well. I mean, do you have thoughts? Do you think of a power struggle at all or anything along those lines? Yeah. I, I read somewhere that kids get over 200 directives a day, which is like 200 times a day, people are telling them what to do. And especially if you're strong-willed and I'm really strong-willed. Like if my husband tells me to do something that I was, even if I was planning on doing it and I already wanted to do it, if he tells me that I have to do something, I could feel myself going, you know, you can't tell me what to do. So I think that it really is hard for kids sometimes that they do get frankly bossed around for most of the day, do this, go here, don't do that, don't do this. And so as parents, as much as possible, and you know, I mentioned before when we were talking about limit setting, for me, it comes back to health and safety limits. And uh, my personal guideline when my kids were little was, is this harmful to themselves, people or property? And just having that guideline when you can stop and think about like, okay, do they really need to brush their hair? Who cares if they wear the wrong kind of footwear? If their feet get cold, you know, they'll learn for next time. Or maybe you've got the jacket in the backpack and they said they didn't want to wear the jacket and you say, okay, you know, I'll just pop it in your backpack in case you get cold. So as humans, we crave autonomy and I'm really trying as much as possible to give them that autonomy whenever we can. And more than just red cup or blue cup. I mean, that's important too, but you know, Alfie Cohn says kids should have the ability to make decisions that make us gasp a little. And I just love that. I love that line. You know, when you were saying before about when kids will act out because they need more autonomy, if we are really controlling and rigid with kids, they will use whatever means they have at their disposal to try to get some of that balance back. The only three things kids really have control over are sleep, toileting, and eating. And I know those are three areas where parents do have a lot of struggles. So when you think about, okay, if I'm having trouble in those areas, maybe it's a reflection of my kid doesn't have enough autonomy in other areas where I am being more controlling. Absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's the balance of, you know, how do you foster some, how do you build some independence and, you know, what you want 
from your child because that's the type of adult you want, an independent adult, right? Or one who can at least be on their own somewhat. So it's like, you don't want them to be super dependent. They don't want that. It's not good for them, not good for you. But yeah, that's the the balance is, I guess, maybe you have to almost recognize there are going to be some power struggles or some times where you're going to say no. And they're, like you said, the decision is going to make you gasp, <laughs> whatever it is. But it's almost like prepping yourself to be ready for that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. The only way you get to be good at making decisions is by making decisions. Yeah. And sometimes you make a bad decision and you learn from it. And of course, like I'm talking age appropriate stuff, we're not going to let kids like, oh, you don't want to wear your bike helmet? Fine. You know, you can get a head injury. Like, right. <laughs> we're not talking about stuff like that. But can I speak just a little tiny bit to the independence thing that you just mentioned? Please. Yeah. Because I'm going to say, yes, we give our kids as much autonomy as possible. And also independence comes from the feeling of being nurtured and having your needs met. So there are lots of times where little kids, I mean, your kids are young, you probably see this, where they're like, no, I want you to do it for me, or, you know, I need help with that. And and you know they can do it themselves. They're capable, you know, physically capable of doing it themselves. But anytime a child is asking you to do something for them that you know they can do themselves, that's a bid for connection and nurturing. And if we can recognize that and not like, oh, you're a big boy, you know, you know how to put your pants on yourself. It's like, oh, you want a little help today? And you can you can say something like, I know you can do this yourself and I'm happy to help you. Because really that true independence comes out of the feeling of all of my needs will be met by my caregiver. That's awesome. Um, I love that. I think we've all gone through that. And our kids, you know, as they get older, you want to, yeah, you can do this. You need to learn how to do this. You're a nine-year-old, you're a six-year-old, whatever it is, like <laughs> you have to learn to put your pants on. And they know how, to your point, you know, they know how, but you don't make that connection always in terms of saying, hey, this is what they're really asking, right? They're saying words, but that's not really what they want. Yeah. They want to be, you know, will you still be there for me? Do I matter? Are you going to take care of me? Um, and, you know, kids have such a strong natural drive for independence. I mean, look at any two-year-old on the planet. Like, I do it. I do it. You know, I want to do it myself. Like, they have a strong natural drive for independence. We don't need to worry that. And I'm not talking about we're doing things for them that they want to do themselves. I'm saying when they say, I need help or I want you to do it for me. That we're like, okay, I, you know, I can help you. I can, I can uh, meet that need. We really don't need to worry about they're not going to be independent if we're, if we're just meeting those nurturing needs. Yeah, no, absolutely. And you know, it, this isn't always easy to keep in mind, but there's going to be a time like way before you're ready where it's like ridiculous for you to help them put their pants on. You know, like they're too old there, and they're not going to want you to say no, mom. I was just talking to my 18-year-old the other day. I mentioned to you before we started recording that he's on a gap year and he's working full-time and he often will stay at his friend's house who works with him. And he said, oh, you know, this morning his friend's mom said, oh, I wish I'd known that you two were getting up early. I would have made you a big breakfast. And and he said, mom, I was so uncomfortable. Like, I don't want her going out of her way for me. And I said, honey, you got to understand when we have kids this age, like we still want to make ourselves irrelevant, <laughs> <laughs> right? Like there's still yeah. going to be a like, let her make you breakfast. Like her kids are, you know, growing up and she probably still wants to feel like she's helping you and, you know, taking care of you. And he was like, oh, okay, mom, I get, I get it. <laughs> yeah, that's wonderful. And the, and maybe one way to think about that from a parental point of view is, you know, my youngest is five. So I have, call it 10 more years of making breakfast until she's totally on her own. So that's a certain number of breakfasts that I'm going to be able to make. That's a big number. But then once she's 18 or 15 or whatever it is when she's making her breakfast all on her own, maybe I have 20 more breakfasts. Maybe it's 10 more breakfasts I'll make in my whole life for her. Yeah. You know what I mean? So that's, <laughs> if you can get that mindset, I mean, it's, 
Yeah. And you never know when the last one's going to be either. Because I, I have a cute story about this. My middle son, it always seems like most of my stories about him. <laughs> but, <laughs> but he, um, when he was younger, he used to always want me to come and tuck him in after he got in bed. Like until I think this happened when he was maybe like nine or 10. One day I noticed like he would get in bed and then he would shout, mama, tuck in, tuck in. And then I would go in and I would tuck him in. And one day I noticed it's been a few weeks since he called me for a tuck-in. And the next day I said, I think I missed your last tuck-in. Like I noticed you don't call me anymore to tuck me in. And he was just like, whatever. And then that night he called me. He's like, mama, tuck-in. <laughs> and I went to tuck him in and he said, that was the last one. <laughs> oh, wow. That's cute. Yeah. That's nice. Oh, so sweet. Yeah, that really is. But to your point, like, you know, they get older and they don't need us as much which is normal. I always say that the hard part about parenting is you're trying to make yourself unnecessary if you're if you're doing it right. Absolutely. I want to switch gears a little and maybe jump back to um, some of the, you know, helping your kids with emotion regulation. Sure. Because we know what their brains aren't ready. They're not developed. We know we need to be more patient and we have some tools at our disposal and we need to keep learning and keep, you know, find the tools that work for us. But how do you deal with that with with your kids? You know, how do you start teaching them emotion regulation? I know it depends developmentally where they're at and all that sort of thing. But is modeling a big part? You know, like how would you frame that, you know, for a new dad? Okay. So what I know, what I've learned about the nervous system, the nervous system is what helps us regulate ourselves, right? Our nervous system is like either experiencing what we're going through as a threat, like even our own uncomfortable feelings of not getting to watch another show or having to go to bed or whatever, that our own uncomfortable feelings can register as a threat to our nervous system. And when our nervous system detects a threat, it launches into fight, flight, or freeze, right? That's our protective mechanism for when we're under threat. And the nervous system can't tell the difference between like a tiger that's just jumped out in front of you on the path and like not having, you know, more iPad time or whatever. It still will register as a threat. And so self-regulation comes when we can recognize that we're hijacked by fight, flight, or freeze and bring ourselves back to calm. And for our children, so that's self-regulation. And the only way that you learn self-regulation is through co-regulation. And co-regulation is what we do with babies, like, you know, babies crying and we're, we're rocking the baby, we're making soothing sounds, patting the baby on the back, whatever we're doing to soothe our baby, that's soothing. That's co-regulation. That's our baby learning. That's when the process starts is that process of learning self-regulation is through experiencing regulation with somebody else's calm. So when our child is upset, the best thing we can do to teach them self-regulation is stay calm ourselves and really work on that. You know, this is not an emergency. I can handle this if my child's unhappy with me or a limit I've set or whatever. And just practicing trying to keep our nervous systems calm because our nervous systems are always talking to each other's nervous systems. And so experiencing that co-regulation is how a child first learns to self-regulate. I love that. Staying calm is not always easy, but if you put yourself in their shoes and, and in your shoes saying, hey, I'm, this is the role I'm playing right now as a parent, as a teacher, this is how I can best serve myself and my family and my kid, most importantly, the calm makes sense. And then there's empathy, which is really important as well. And so I want to talk a minute about empathy, but in the, in the context we were just speaking of, of being calm and helping your child when they're going kind of wild or whatever, how would you frame the role of empathy in that and yeah. So a lot of people when, you know, when they think about teaching children self-regulation skills, they think about things like, I know there are like lots of child-friendly exercises, like pretend you're blowing on a hot chocolate and then you're smelling the hot chocolate, like, you know, kind of those 
blowing out the birthday candles sorts of exercises, tools that are helpful, but nobody wants to calm down unless they feel understood. And that's where empathy comes in. So you can teach your child all of the strategies in the world to calm themselves, but nobody, I mean, think about the last time you're upset. If someone said to you, just calm down, Will, you know, you would probably get even more upset. So what you want to do when you talk about empathy, that's so important. That's actually really the second step. The first is staying calm yourself. And then the second is to empathize with your upset child. And empathy doesn't mean you have to agree. And most of the time you won't agree because it'll seem like something silly and childlike that they're upset about but really trying to let them know that you understand and that, you know, I love the phrase of, of course, of course you're upset that you can't have more iPad time. You know, I, I totally understand. And then I always recommend that we excise the word, but from our vocabulary mm-hmm. <laughs> because, but just erased all the empathy that you just gave. So of course you're upset that you can't keep watching TV. And at the same time, it is time to turn it off and get ready for bed. So I say, and at the same time, instead of, but so just really trying to understand that little kids get upset about things that seem silly to us, but they're important to them. And that's really appropriate. You know, small children have small problems and those are like the training wheels for bigger problems as they get older. And when you're empathizing, you're welcoming feelings, right? You're not telling them to suck it up or giving in. And so that becomes part of that bigger piece of teaching that emotional resilience by welcoming those feelings and empathizing. I like that. That's what you need to do. Yeah, keep your, you know, stay calm and, and have that empathy. But it's uh, not always easy to do, but I like your approach. And I think the last topic I wanted to bring up that's on my mind are consequences. So your child did something wrong and, you know, you're not punishing them necessarily, but you want to set the right consequence so they understand why, you know, they shouldn't do what they did. So I'd like to ask about ones that aren't so clear. Like, you know, there's a, if one child hits another, for example. And you know, that's coming from something else, you know, but how do you find the consequence that's appropriate to something like that? Or, or do you, or do you sometimes just throw in the towel and say, Hey, that was a teachable moment. They know they don't need to hear it again from you kind of thing. Yeah. So I don't like to think of that as throwing in the towel, but in peaceful parenting, we don't use consequences. We believe in kind, firm limits without punishment and punishment and consequences have come to become synonymous in our culture today. But the consequences that we do believe in are natural consequences. And if I could just make a differentiation for your listeners about the difference between consequences and natural consequences, natural consequences have come with no involvement from us. So if you forget your lunch, the natural consequences that you're hungry. If you go outside without a raincoat and it's raining, the natural consequences that you get wet. You throw your toy and it breaks, the natural consequences that your toy is broken. It, to your example, if you hit your sibling, the natural consequences that your sibling is hurt. Those are the natural consequences. And for reasons why we, I can send you an article if your listeners are interested in all the reasons why we don't use punishment, because that would be like another hour if we could we could discuss for like another hour. Yeah, please do. I'll, I'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, thank you. I'll send you an article about it. But we really believe that back to what I was saying before is that kids want to do the right thing. And that the discipline that we believe in in peaceful parenting is actually just teaching and looking at the root of the issue of whatever's happening. So if you have hitting, you might look at sibling rivalry. You might look at, do you need to have better sharing and property guidelines? If it was like they're hitting because of a toy, do you need to, I mean, I could go on, do you need to be closer by if the kids are playing together because it tends to get out of hand? Is it a question of just emotional immaturity and poor self-regulation? I mean, self-regulation, or rather in this case, it might be impulse control that we're talking about. 
doesn't start to develop till between the ages of five and seven for a typical child. So some kids seem like they have better impulse control because they're not as spirited or not as sensitive or emotional. But really, impulse control doesn't even come online in terms of brain development until between the ages of five and seven. Going back to consequences, in peaceful parenting, we believe that you don't need to make people feel bad to teach them something. And that's really the whole big idea of consequences is like, I've got to make an impression. I've got to make sure they know this isn't okay. So I'm going to cause some measure of pain, whether it's, you know, a timeout or taking something away. And in peaceful parenting, we really don't believe that that's how children learn best. And you think about like, if you were at work and you made a mistake, would you do a better job if your boss, you know, took you in front of everyone else, yelled at you, made you stay late and docked your pay? Probably not. (laughs) Right, right. Yeah. yeah. Would you do better if your boss said, hey, you know, that report wasn't what I was hoping for. What's going on? How can I support you to do a better job? You know, are there some challenges that are coming up for you? That would make you a better employee. Absolutely. I mean, that's just thinking about it again through the how do regular people want to be treated? You know, same thing with your little people, you know, your little kids. So no, that's that's great. I, I really liked what you said about natural consequences of hitting in particular. That was one that really I've talked to a lot of other parents and had other guests on. We've talked about natural consequence of hitting, but I think that's really beautiful that the natural consequence of hitting your sibling is you hurt your sibling. Yeah. Simple as that. It is. And that this is the thing too. Like, okay, so say one kid hits the other kid and you haven't learned about people parenting and you say, okay, you've lost your TV privileges for the rest of the day. It's possible that if you are kind of harsh enough, you might get a kid to stop hitting or doing the undesirable behavior because of what you've done. Although with strong-willed kids, punishments tend to backfire because they don't want to be bossed around. And also we just talked about impulse control and that not really coming online until they're a little bit older. But let's just say for argument's sake, you are able to get your kid to stop hitting by using punishment. What you've just taught your child is that what happens when I hit my brother is something bad happens to me, right? It's all about me. It's not about my brother. What we want to teach kids is what happens when you hit your brother is it hurts your brother, right? That raises children into adults who care about other people and their community, not just about what's in it for me. So that's really like at the base of consequences. And also the flip side, which is rewards, is that I should do things or not do things because of how it affects me. Not I should do things or not do things because of how it affects other people or my community or property or whatever. And honestly, like if you look around at the world today, I think a lot of problems that we see are because people have been raised to think about themselves before they think about other people. That's wonderful. That's exactly the right. I mean, there's two mindsets you can have. You're right. You could be self-focused or you could be focused and understanding that you're part of this big world and how you can impact it. So yeah. And I didn't necessarily make that connection between rewards and punishment and that, but I think you're right. You can start teaching it and modeling it at such an early age because you already are teaching something, right? And to your point, are you teaching punishment? Are you teaching it affects you? Are you teaching that, hey, you know, this is affecting other people, which will affect you, but it's not all about you. Yeah. And in the hitting example, you know, you can say like, oh my goodness, look at your brother. He's crying. I know you were so upset that he took your toy. At the same time, no hitting. You can come and get me and I'll help you if he takes your toy. Your brother's crying. You know, what can you do? Can you help your brother feel better? So then you can also invite a repair, right? And mm. and then it also helps your child feel like a good person again, because and that's the other thing about punishment is it makes them feel like a bad person. And when someone feels like a bad person, they act a lot worse. No, absolutely. And it's just not a good feeling. Again, put yourself in your kid's shoes and it makes a lot more sense, I think. And just because I've heard objections from so many parents when they're sort of wrapping their minds around this no punishment thing, 
you know, if anyone who's listening is like, well, you know, that's just like saying they can just hit their brother whenever they want if you don't do a, a punishment or a consequence. Going back to what I said before was your kids want to be good, right? Like that's our our human nature is to be good and connected with the people that we love and who love us. And if we're acting out of alignment with that, it's because something else is going on. But, you know, think about if you were, I don't know if you have a partner, but say you like came home from work one day and and you had a really nasty, horrible day and you were kind of like testy and a little bit snappish and rude to your partner when your partner asked you a question. And what would the impression be if your partner said, hey, don't talk to me like that, Will? Or if your partner said something like, oh my goodness, it seems like you've had a really hard day. What's going on? You know, if your partner responded with the compassion, you wouldn't think, oh, great. Now I can just talk to my partner in a nasty way whenever I want and and I'll just get away with it. You would think, oh gosh, you know, I feel so understood. I feel so loved. Because nobody wants to act like a jerk. Like we just don't. And including little kids who hit their siblings, they feel bad and they don't want to do that. That's right. I mean, I like that mindset. And if we can keep it in our heads as parents, say, okay, why are they acting like this? We know they don't want to be unhappy. We know they don't want to you know, make us unhappy, but they're trying to communicate something. Something's going on, you know, kind of what is it? So the last thing I want to ask you about is still, still on consequences, but how, you know, kind of warning of consequences or making your children aware of consequences, the balance of that and kind of breeding anxiety in your kids. Say, hey, you know, we're going to be late if you don't get your shoes on. And if we're late, we're not going to get a spot in the parking lot or whatever it is, right? And you're creating these situations, you're trying to make sure they understand why it's important, but at the same time, you don't want to turn them into these, you know, warriors. And so do you have a, do you have thoughts on that or how to balance those things? Yeah, you know, that's a great thing to think about for parents because what the research shows on anxiety is that it's part nature, part nurture. You know, some kids are just born with a little bit more of a cautious, anxious disposition. And also it's something that we give our kids by how we act towards them, like the be careful, like, you know, like that can really make a kid anxious. And the same with what your example of like, you know, there's like the natural limits of time and reality. And then there's also how we are projecting our own anxiety. So in your example that you just gave, what I hear is there's a parent who's really anxious about being late and not getting the spot in the parking lot. So what I would say in that, and I know this isn't exactly like the, I think I'm taking it in a different direction than you, how you're asking me, but managing our own anxiety is how we're not going to pass it on to our kids. And yes, there are realities of timing and we don't want to be late. Maybe we'd have to then find a different parking spot and go in and sign our kid in. And then we're late for work and then our boss is unhappy with us or whatever, but really trying to like manage our own anxiety in the moment. And then I know this is just an example, but I'd say like, look at your morning. And if this is a pattern, maybe you have to make some changes in in your morning, like get up a little earlier or not try to do as much in the morning or whatever. Absolutely. I think you you answered it directly, actually, with what you said. And you know, separate your own anxiety. If you have it, like, where's this coming from? And then you can still say, hey, this is the consequence. But if you're, this is the consequence and yeah. they sense that anxiety from you, that's a lot different than the other approach, right? Being late is such a trigger for so many parents. And, um, you know, you know, as I just said, figure out what it is about your morning, why it's, it's always a problem. But also, is it really an emergency? Because a lot of the times it's not okay, we're going to be five minutes late. Do we really want to start off our day with yelling and panic or can we just be five minutes late and it's not really a big deal? Absolutely. Yeah. It's always, you know, how big of a deal is this really? In the scheme of things, it's almost always not, right? So just in general with parenting, it feels like maybe in life even, um, the amount of times we worry about things that just don't come to fruition is pretty amazing. So yeah. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for joining us. This was 
really incredible. I'm excited actually just to re-listen <laughs> myself here. I know our, our listeners are going to enjoy it. Listeners, go to sarahrosensweet.com and learn more. You can go to our show notes, so that'll be great. And we're going to have um, How to Stop Yelling free course for you guys and some other information as well for the article we discussed. But um, a lot of good information. And uh, thanks again for joining us, Sarah. Thanks for having me, Will. If you liked our podcast, please subscribe and leave us a review. If you haven't joined us yet, go to adadspath.com to get our free newsletter exclusively for dads. And do you know a friend who might like this podcast? Send it on. We want to help as many dads as possible make fatherhood count. Dad on.